Hello and welcome to this next podcast in our series exploring topics around health inequalities. My name is Oluwashio Aniam, Sean for short, and in today's podcast we will be discussing the issue of drug abuse and addiction. Now this comes off the back of a recent report from the Office for National Statistics stating that annual alcohol-related deaths since the onset of the pandemic have been higher than in the previous 20 years. I'm sure we've all heard anecdotally that alcohol consumption increased during lockdown. This is probably the case for a lot of us, in fact. But the fact that this is translating into an increase in deaths, although it may not be surprising when you think about it, it is alarming. And inevitably, this will be linked to a rise in drug-related admissions, which obviously obviously will put added pressure on an already incredibly strained NHS. So is there anything more we can be doing as healthcare professionals? Are there any small changes we can make to help people with addiction, not just for the sake of reducing admissions to make our own lives easier, but more importantly, to prevent the considerable morbidity and even mortality people and their families experience when affected by addiction. Now, to discuss this with me today, I have Dr. Molly Bradbury. Molly is a Foundation Year 2 doctor working in Seven Deanery, who has a special interest in inclusion, health and addiction. Hello, Molly. How are you today? Hi. Nice to see you, Sean. I'm well. Good, good. Um, so, Molly, I've, I've just mentioned some very basic statistics about addiction. Um, could you help uh, provide some context to our listeners by explaining exactly how big this issue of drug addiction is in our society today? So it's it's massive, um, but it's quite difficult to know exactly exactly how big. So there's a lot of limitations in looking at statistics specifically in this area. So it's quite easy to capture them for alcohol relatively, but for for drugs which are illegal or which are um, targeted by crime agencies, it's difficult to capture true statistics. So what we do tend to look at is people who are in treatment. Um, and we do know that there are around 275,000 people who were in treatment in the year 2020 to 2021 alone, wow. which is a big increase on the previous year. And over half of those are in treatment for, for opioids. So that's mainly heroin. 30% are with alcohol um, and the other groups are much smaller um, areas, so benzodiazepines, crack cocaine and other substances. And actually it's it's difficult because that's not to mean that other substances are used less, but it's more that the treatment tends to focus mostly on opiates and on alcohol. And, and they're often the big ones and the big killers that we worry about. Um, and with regards to the report you, you referenced, um, in previous years, um, deaths in those groups have been rising and, and they had managed to, to keep them down. And actually we had had in most groups, not opiates, but in other groups, so in alcohol and in other drug drugs, the deaths in treatment had been falling. But mm. actually when we get to 2020, deaths in all treatment groups rose. And we're not talking about small rises. The the rise in, drug, in deaths that you referenced was 40% for those who wow. use alcohol and 20% in those who use opioids. Bear in mind that that's 20% on the background of deaths which have been rising year on year. Mm. It's alarming, the rises of, of deaths, and that's just those in treatment. So overall, in that period of time, there was 
nearly 3,000 drugs-related deaths, about seven deaths every day in the UK. And it's thought that about half of the people who are dying aren't in treatment. So we know that those deaths in treatment are rising, and we know that there are lots of people who aren't in treatment who are also dying. And, and actually, it's difficult to capture those people who aren't in treatment. So the most recent data we have on that is from way back in 2016, and um, that estimates that there was around 314,000 people who were using either opiates, crack, or both, both in and out of treatment. And that was a number of years ago and pre-pandemic. And the dynamics of that population have changed a lot. So it's likely to be much, much higher than that. Mm. So the answer to your question really is that it's a huge problem and it's difficult for us to to quantify exactly how big, but we know that it's big and it's rising and that not only is use rising, but most worryingly, the deaths within the people who are suffering with addiction are rising too. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't actually capture the statistic you mentioned about the, um, the fact that there is, there's a 40% increase in alcohol-related deaths. 40%, that sounds, that's huge. Um, uh, yeah, that, I hadn't picked that up. Yeah. Um, the other thing that struck me about what you were just saying is is that despite that, actually, the, did you say opioid use is more of an issue in terms of um, uh, act, people being admitted or, or accessing healthcare services? Opioid use is more of an issue. It's gone up more than alcohol use. Is, is that is that correct? So again, it's tricky exactly to quantify. So mm. you have to bear in mind that more people um, will use alcohol. Oh, of so, course, yes. Um, but less people will have a problem with true addiction. So over half of the people who are in treatment, who are in contact with drug treatment services, tend to be with opioids. But right. that's very skewed by the fact that drug treatment services tend to provide methadone. So mm you will attract more people to treatment services. So it's difficult to know exactly the scale. Um, and alcohol is a really, really big problem, accounts for a lot of deaths, and but is it's difficult to manage in the statistics because it's just so difficult to know. Um, and the fact that a lot of these processes are illegal means that it is just a lot more difficult to know exactly what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the other thing to mention is also that the dynamics of these populations has changed a lot over mm. the past 10 years. So particularly amongst the opioid using population, it's an aging population, it's aged significantly. So both use and deaths are more common um, now with relatively higher rates of those people kind of in that age 45 to 49 age bracket, which is quite different than how it was 10 years ago. And it adds an additional level of complexity to providing care and health care for those patients because they have more comorbidity. So it isn't just about the physical number of people who are in treatment. It's the dynamics of those populations changing over time. And that makes it more difficult to manage their health, essentially. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't know that, actually, that it was uh, sort of the older population. Or not, I wouldn't say old. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was more of an issue of young people and drug use in young people rather than uh, in the 40s to 49 age range. Um, I've, I've also been hearing a lot about these novel psychoactive substances. Um, is there what, what's happening with these? So, again, it's 
incredibly tricky to know. So the novel use tends to be quite localised um, and each area often will have a certain thing that is being used more at the moment. Mm. And often the issues are with your kind of what are called synthetic kind of cannabinoids, like your spice, that's actually yes. nothing like cannabis at all. Um, that's real hotspots in areas. And also your more synthetic opioids in particular and synthetic um, benzodiazepines and they are particularly scary because although the use of them is smaller they're a bit more of an unknown entity mm. um, and you will just get breakthrough um, particular groups and particular use that is really really dangerous mm. um, that will just suddenly appear and then we'll kind of filter out um, and again this, our statistics on those unfortunately is really really poor um simply because it's so variable across across the uk and it does tend to happen locally but most local hospitals particularly in emergency departments will have kind of communication about what's going out locally and whether there's any advice on how to manage it mm. yeah i mean i i completely share your your concern about these these synthetic substances um and I, I've certainly been in situations where, you know, we've we've heard that someone's taken something, um, some some random name that we've never heard of, and we're trying to treat them, but we have no idea. Um, so yeah, very worrying. Um, going go, just going back to what you said about the demographics um, mm -hmm. and the increasing age range. The, what about um, the life expectancy? Does this increase in age range of people using uh, these um, drugs? Does that affect their life expectancy at all? So there is, as you would imagine, a greatly shortened life expectancy associated with using opioids. Mm. And that we could talk about opioids in particular because that's mm. where a lot of the data is. But yeah. it's very similar with alcohol and it's similar with lots of other substances, including these novel substances. Uh, and actually, there is some quite good studies that look at sort of um, big cohorts of people, um, comparing them to kind of a cohort of the general public. And actually, um, drugs deaths are a lot higher in the, those groups and cause a higher mortality. But there's also higher mortality for all causes of death. And there's this kind of switch that happens as the people as people age, which is at the start of lots of these studies, most of the deaths, unfortunately, are caused directly by by drugs. So from overdose, mostly or drug related poisonings. And then as the cohort ages, a proportion of that is taken over by both communicable diseases, a lot of hepatitis and mm -hmm. other infections, yeah. but also your non-communicable diseases kick in. And so you have these kind of two burdens that happen. Lots of, in the young, slightly younger opioid using population, really it's the drugs related deaths that are the problem. And mm -hmm. then that problem as time goes on, and the population age becomes slightly smaller and the burden of ill health rises. Mm. So actually, it's you have to look at both at the same time. You have to look at people who are dying directly of overdose and people who are dying of non-directly drug-related, but often associated with that kind of health inequity and societal exclusion. Mm. I mean, I guess I expected 
you to tell me that there'll be a reduced ex- life expectancy, but I, I didn't expect it to be such a such a massive reduction, and I certainly did not expect that it, there is also an increase in the all-cause mortality, particularly. Um, you mentioned about non-communicable diseases. I mean, that's something I, I wasn't aware of, uh, to be honest. Um, could, could you could you tell me um, and our listeners uh, how drug addiction actually affects health outcome? What what's what are the potential mechanisms behind it? So again, you can sort of split this up into into two main kind of areas, if you like. Mm. So um, if you think about the direct effects of using drugs themselves, mm. so the any um, injection associated issues, so wound infection, abscess, bloodborne viruses, and, and particularly with alcohol, liver failure and, and GI problems, that kind of falls into, into one category, if you like. And then if you think about the other side, it's associated with societal exclusion. So poor nutritional status, poor housing, smoking, um, and the things that are associated with that. So you COPD, diabetes, cancers mm. are still a really big issue in this group. And I know you've spoken, I guess, at length in this health inequality series about how where you live and your socioeconomic mm. status determining your health outcomes. And that is certainly true for this group as well. Wow. So you're looking at some of the most disadvantaged and excluded people from society. So they not only have the burden of addiction, there's also the burden of um societal exclusion and that impact on health as well and then not forgetting as well the burden of mental health on the population as well so you're often they get taken together and addiction in this country is mostly managed by psychiatrists and you're thinking not only of physical ill health but the vicious cycle of poor mental health and addiction and being unable to tackle addiction because of poor mental health and vice versa so you've got all of those things all coming together in one population and that leads to a really high burden of ill health and not only do you have this increasing comorbidity but it's really difficult for these patients to access care yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, thanks, thanks for highlighting the issue of health inequalities because, you know, that is the main focus of this podcast series, as you know. Um, I mean, I guess I, I find myself asking, it, just related to the point you just you just mentioned, do, do you think there is there are any kind of um, unconscious biases that may be at play here as well. Um, you mentioned about them struggling to access healthcare uh, services. Do you think that, do you think there may be some role in the way healthcare professionals actually perceive people with addiction, with drug addiction in particular, and how that could influence things? So uh, absolutely. I think mm. that one of the big reasons that, that the studies cite that people find it more difficult to access care is the unfortunately the attitude of staff and the stigma that people face so about poor management of pain and poor management of symptoms of withdrawal comes up again and again and actually I think there is a degree of people being biased against this group of people because of their personal beliefs that what these people are suffering with is 
morally or ethically opposed to, to how they want to live their lives, which means that people do just tr- often treat this group of patients badly. Mm. And it makes it more difficult for them to want to access care. And also, I mean, there's lots of other things as well. For example, like not having the material resource to make it to appointments or to make it to appointments in a timely manner or to answer the phone. And that can cause a lot of frustration amongst amongst us, the service providers, um, particularly when we're under so much pressure to provide service. If people don't turn up for appointments and things like that, it can, can make people understandably quite cross. But the way that that is construed to a person who maybe just physically can't get there because of lack of material resource or lack of of ability to prioritise that because of addiction makes it really difficult for both parties. Mm. And this, mm. I mean, that point you just made about people uh, or healthcare providers providing uh, healthcare providers believing that um, these problems are self-inflicted really strikes, uh, rings true with me. As, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, my area of interest is obesity, and that is definitely a huge barrier for uh, patients to actually access um, interventions that can help them. Uh, that is a barrier that is created by those beliefs in healthcare professionals. Um, it, we've obviously talked about the barriers uh, to services what I don't know is, I guess, what services are actually available for people living with drug addiction um, to access if they do want or, or need help? So there's lots of different services available in, in the community. Um, and mostly this is kind of falls under the umbrella of community drug and alcohol services. And um, they will provide a mixture of um, most, it's mostly addiction related support. So it's normally pharmacological management. So um, your opioid substitution therapy, so buprenorphine prescriptions, methadone prescriptions, they all often will have key workers and groups who will look at recovery based approaches. Um, they will often have a set of core services, which normally includes those prescriptions, um, s- some minimal physical health assessment, although that's not really what they're there for. Um, it's more risk assessment for um, outpatient detox from alcohol. Um, and there will be sometimes bloodborne virus testing and things like that offered. The thing to remember with these services is that they're provided by a mixture of NHS providers, private subcontractors and third sector and often charitable organisations. So um, they'll often be there through the local authority rather than through NHS services. So there will be retendering. Um, and the, so providers will be quite local um, and the level and range of services that they provide changes quite a lot between areas. So it's really important for people to make themselves aware of their local provider or providers. Sometimes it's multiple. Um, and then otherwise, it's quite area dependent. So some places will offer more testing than others. Um, There are good examples of services around the UK that provide more integrated approaches. So we'll provide physical health nurses. Sometimes you'll get visiting GPs going into um, community drug and alcohol services or local GPs sometimes will offer a substance misuse service within the practice. 
Um, some hospitals have specialist clinics. Um, a lot of hospitals now have a liaison service. I think alcohol liaison is a fairly established yeah, um, yeah. group, but a kind of substance misuse liaison is a new area which can be really useful. So having specialist nurses within hospitals. Um, most areas have a specialist um, maternity service and midwifery service that will offer a specific kind of antenatal clinic. So there is a lot that's available, but unfortunately, it's not always well integrated. It's quite variable around the UK. And unfortunately, these community services in particular have had some really difficult issues with funding kind of since 2012 and have had um, an increasing population to serve. Mm -hmm. Um, and often doing that with with limited resource. So it's important to recognise there is a lot of services there and a lot of really good stuff going on, but it isn't always consistent. And it, the services are, are stretched simply by the numbers and the numbers of deaths is is crippling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually didn't know there was so much, um, such a wide range of services available. Um, that That sounds really good. But having said that, it also sounds like a very complicated system because it sounds like there's a lot of players in the, in, involved in terms of you've got the hospital services, um, you've got local authorities, third sector, quite a lot going on. And to me, I always struggle to know as, a, as someone who works in a hospital how to access these services. Um, is, do you know, is there any... Um, any is there an easy way to access these services from hospital at all or do, do we have to leave it to our, the patients themselves to go and access them? So the short answer is no, there isn't an easy mm. way that this links to hospital. Um, and again, like I've said, it, I've listed off a load of services that all sound, it sounds comprehensive, but unfortunately it will be small amounts in small areas yeah. and often will be quite nine to five basis which can make it really tricky as a clinician. And ultimately, although there's lots of services there, most of the patients that we see in hospital will be trying to access physical health care and sometimes care for addiction via the emergency department because it's always there and it's mm. always open. Mm. So it does place you as a, as a clinician in a slightly tricky spot. So it's, there certainly isn't enough and it certainly needs to be more comprehensive. And like you said, it often doesn't always link well together. And actually, there are some really good people doing really good things, but it just isn't as comprehensive as it could be. And it certainly doesn't link, always link well with, with physical health, health services. Do you, do you think there's a specific reason for why the funding has been reduced or, or relatively reduced, I should say? So one of the big changes that happened was that the services got moved mostly away from NHS providers and into local yeah. authority. Okay. And there's a logic to that, to say that a lot of these problems coexist with significant issues with housing, with needing more support from social services and children's services and things like that. But it did take a lot of the money away from the, yeah. the sector. And because they go through this retendering process often it means that 
there's a pressure on the service every few years to make things more efficient, which often means cheaper. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that that disinvestment is quite difficult to get around and to overcome. And the government recently has has kind of responded to a report which looked at um, the impact. It was a kind of a two part independent report. Part one really looked at most of the crime related to to drugs and drug addiction and secondly looked at health and and wider implications and there has been more money promised in that report but there is also a big focus on um, the crime aspect to it um, and managing such issues like in prison and um, with with tackling kind of crime as the root cause Um, but actually and really as clinicians with the person in front of you who is who is struggling I think the crime group behind them that's supplying them often seems much more Mm. of an abstract concept particularly when you've got somebody in front of you who's struggling with addiction with multiple health issues sometimes with homelessness with significant mental health issues who actually needs a more wraparound approach um it's it's tricky to put yeah. those things together so do you do you have any practical tips for listeners uh, to take away um with them on how to approach and help a patient they may encounter with drug addiction i mean i'm thinking of for example a medical trainee seeing an overdose patient on a busy shift in the admissions unit or or a practitioner in a busy gp surgery um that sees someone who appears to be drinking a concerning amount of alcohol do you, what what can they do to help the the person in front of them? So yeah, uh, you you're completely right. There's there's loads that we can do, and actually, generally, most of what needs needs to be done to tackle all of this health inequity, um, including people with addiction, but in a much wider way, it kind of doesn't always sit with you in the emergency mm. department or in AMU. Mm. It sits with those upstream interventions tackling poverty and early childhood experiences and housing but that's far beyond what we can do as clinicians but there are really straightforward things that people can do so to start with it's addressing your unconscious bias towards people who use drugs to recognize that it's a person's characteristic as a series of circumstances and it damages their health and it isn't something that they are or a moral failing mm. it's a set of circumstances that we need to look at at any in a, at the same way we would any other problem and each hospital you work in or each area you work in will have a policy so one of the main things you can do as somebody in amu is to familiarize yourself with your local policy because unfortunately these are often different and there isn't a national consensus about how it should be managed so make sure that you're familiar with your local policy about how you refer into services and how you manage um, manage patients as an inpatient. From an inpatient perspective, the main one of the main things is early and adequate management of withdrawal. So if you see somebody who you know is using alcohol or more specifically opioids, you need to manage that promptly and appropriately. And for alcohol, that might be we're much better at doing it because it's perceived as being dangerous. But for opioids, it's incredibly uncomfortable um, and it will lead to patients often taking an early discharge. 
So you need to manage withdrawal effectively early, which usually means giving OST, which is something like methadone or buprenorphine. And each hospital will have a policy. So early and adequate management of withdrawal, managing patients in a compassionate way and managing pain appropriately. Pain in hospital in these patients is a really big issue. Mm, and the yes. perception that people are drug seeking gets in the way of adequately managing pain in a compassionate way. And if you aren't comfortable with managing the person's pain, so you're a junior doctor, you're an F1, you don't know how to prescribe pain relief or what pain relief to give for somebody who uses a lot of heroin, for example, then you need to try and find out and ask. Um, and there will always be senior people there who will know how to manage pain. So, and just lead with compassion, use appropriate language, include the person in choices about their care, um, ensure that you're actively engaging with your local policy. And the other thing, unfortunately, I don't want to leave it on a bleak note, but it's a really <laughs> important statistic to recognise is that if a patient gets admitted to hospital, they are more likely to die from overdose shortly following discharge than if they had never been admitted. Wow. So one in, four, one in 14 opioid related deaths in England happens in the two weeks following hospital discharge. So it's almost like just a just a brief discussion with them. Safety netting, as we, we do with any patient uh, that exactly. we see in any context, um, just mentioning that that. Uh, that uh, point about their tolerance reducing that's something that's so obvious but it's just never come to my mind I guess it's never something that we've discussed or that I've discussed um, but but yeah that's that's really important I think and it doesn't take long either that's a really really uh, important thing it's, it's something that you can do very quickly but could actually have an impact on on outcomes um, yeah I think that's that's really helpful and actually there's quite a lot of things to uh, take away from there. Um, now, I'd love to continue discussing this fascinating topic, actually, but unfortunately, our time is up. Uh, so, so thanks very much, Molly, um, for uh, having this chat with me and uh, doing this podcast with me today. Great. Thank you very much. And as always, many thanks to you for listening to this podcast. Hopefully, we've given you some food for thought. Um, Please bear in mind some of the tips Molly has mentioned. Be aware of your own unconscious biases when dealing with patients with drug addiction. And remember, most importantly, a quick bit of safety netting can make a huge difference. Take care. Bye.